So as we open our review of Exodus, that was wonderful. Here we have reference to the sons of Israel and, and Jacob, that is Jacob. And it harkens back, just as Larry says, to this promise that God made to Abram, who became Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. And by the time the Exodus starts, would you call it a great nation? It's a 70 people, right? Which is a lot, but not many more than are here. Think about that. Many were probably younger, but <laughs> 70 people. That's not that many. <laughs> the answer is perfect. There's a reminder that the story of Exodus is not just a self-contained story. Here's something cool God did back in the day. It is an essential part of this grand story that, as we'll see, echoes throughout Scripture. So, very important. So, we find out that Israel uh, and his descendants find themselves in uh, Egypt. And in verse 6 it says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But... The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And then one of the pivotal verses, I think, in all of Scripture, verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So this whole time, the, the leaders of Egypt have been looking with a benevolent eye on the people of Israel uh, God is blessing them, uh, and they are being looked at upon with favor because of the amazing work that Joseph did to s literally save the land um, from perishing during the famine uh, so many hundred years ago. And then we start to hear about Moses, and we'll skip over his early days. Let's talk about Pharaoh. So... There arose this new king in Egypt. And uh, we find as we flip through the chapters that um, he said, you know, these people are getting too, too great in number. Um, uh, I'm going to start to take more advantage of them. And I don't know if it was a threat or what it was, but increasing, increasing, increasing pressure, and the people cried out for deliverance. Moses reaches out, I'm sorry, God reaches out to Moses. We know that other amazing story where God calls Moses and at the same time reveals who he is uh, in the I am conversation. And then we have this big section of the plagues. Uh, where Pharaoh and the plague. So the question is, why was this particular Pharaoh such an affront to God? Because you do get that sense that it's God versus Pharaoh. If you think from the movie it's Moses versus Pharaoh, uh, you're not looking at it exactly right. It's God versus Pharaoh. So why was Pharaoh and his arrogance 
such an affront to God. Okay. They worship Pharaoh's God. He was abusing the Israelites. The Israelites were set apart to serve God, not be slaves for Pharaoh. Okay. So whose people were these? Were they Pharaoh's people, really? They're God's people, right? Um, so I, I think all of those are right. And I think there is an element that, um, you know, the Pharaoh was assumed to be God and worshiped as God. And if you haven't picked up on it, God's not into this whole idolatry thing, right? Uh, that's, that's not, it's not a more the merrier sort of worship thing as far as God's concerned. Pharaoh was in essence an idol that these people were worshiping. Um, God said, Dad did some answers. I told him, he, he turned his answers. You guys, this is my dad's answers. Um, I'm actually going to post them on the, on the website. Um, at first I thought, I said, well, is he, is he showing off or making me look bad or just doesn't want me to mess it up? Um, it, probably the latter. Um, no, I think it was great. Um, but he, he, he correctly makes a point where God says, I am God and there is no other, right? So Pharaoh is setting himself up to, to be, in essence, a substitute God. All right, so this leads directly to the next question. Why are the plagues such an effective condemnation of Pharaoh? Right, so as, as Pat says, each of the plagues was directed at one of the many, many gods that Egypt had. Uh, absolutely correct. Anything else? Ju So it was a, um, it was very effective in the sense that it showed the limits of this person who put himself up as God, but uh, when he came up against the real God, was in essence shown to be essentially powerless. What else? I put that he was showing the people and Pharaoh that he was the one true God and that he was had supremacy over everything. Absolutely. Sharon said he was the one true God. God is the one. The other thing that the plagues were so effective at doing, and, and I, I think uh, this is definitely one of those questions where uh, one answer just does not do it justice. I, I definitely believe that that there's a reason that the that the, the specific plagues were, were what they were um, because of the gods. And I'll kind of walk through a couple of these. Um, as he's mentioned, um, there was a god to the Nile. You know, the first plague, the Nile turned to blood. There was um, 
Frogs were a fertility symbol. There were gnats, which was, there was a god of the desert, and uh, flies, this whole thing. Uh, there was this, the boils, you know, there was a, a god that had um, power over disease, supposedly. Uh, so in every situation, there was a parallel now. The other thing is that throughout Exodus, we get a glimpse that God is not only the leader and, you know, God of his people, but as Sharon said, he's his God over everything. And so you see echoes of the creation story where God is showing his power over all of creation. Um, and as we start to think about this, I think you'll see it, you know, um, as, as when God created the earth, as soon as man came on the scene, what was God's connection with Adam and with Eve? It was relationship. It was walking with them. It was giving them tasks. It was, you know, giving them authority to, to do things. It was to include them in a small way in his creation. And so uh, you see the, the power over all of creation uh, in this picture of the plagues. Exodus 19, if you'll turn. Is it 19? No, that's a little too far, sorry. Uh, read my notes. 14. Thank you. 14. The crossing of the Red Sea. I saw Sharon's homework. No. <laughs> she ran out of room. No. On her. The Lord says to Moses, verse 1, tell the people of Israel to turn back and camp. Right there. Um, verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. And the Egyptian, the Egyptians shall what? They shall know that I am the Lord. And we hear about the, you know, the mind of Pharaoh changed and so forth. He decides to pursue. We found out this amazing plan. Verse 21, Moses stretched his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right and to their left. And of course, we know what happened. So the question was, how is the parting of the Red Sea echoed in other places throughout Scripture? Judges, when God appointed these, these men and women as judges, 
the things that they were able to accomplish through God's power were miracles. So I think it's just a miracle that all through the Bible, I think that's a reflection of what happened there. So this would definitely make the top 10 list of all the miracles and uh, certainly is uh, a testimony to the fact that Jehovah is the God of the miraculous. Okay, so that's good. What else? So an example, not only that God is a God of miracles, but he often shows himself to be most miraculous when he is saving us, in essence. What else? Can you imagine the fear in the guards on the wall of Jericho when they looked out and the Jordan River was gone and they were eyeball to eyeball with the Israelites? Yeah. They were already shaking in their boots. Now all of a sudden, the only barrier between them and Israel, it ain't there no more. So some 40-ish years later, when finally the Israelites make it to the edge of the Promised Land, they're coming in from the east, and they're going to cross over to take Jericho. But now there's another river to cross. And just like the Red Sea, as Ken alludes, it was parted. And they walk through. So here we have the Israelites in Egypt crossing out of Egypt where they were oppressed, where they were slaves, where they were persecuted, where their backs were up against it, being pursued by Pharaoh's army and all of his chariots. And now they escape to the other side to begin what God intends for them to have, their new life. There's a few missteps along the way. So there's a delay in God getting them where they want to do. But then, years later, here they are on the brink, ready to go into their new life. And again, God parts the waters and makes it happen. Where else? He did it one other time, but just for two people, Elijah and Elisha. Um, Tell us that story. Excellent. But my favorite thing is in, in Psalm 18, it's also in 2 Samuel 20, where David praises God for what he did for him when he was running away from Saul. If you don't mind, I'll read it a little bit. Please. Um, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I, have, I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cores of death encompassed me. Torrents of destruction assailed me. The cores of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. 
In my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God and cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and I cried to him and reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring, devouring fire and smell, blowing cold, flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. His darkness was under his feet. He rode on the chair of the flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering his canopy around him, thick clouds dark as water. Out of the brightness, he fell from hailstones and clouds made coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them, and the channels of the sea were seen. And the foundations of the world were laid bare at your refusal, Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who gave me this, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me on the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So... I think it's a it's important as you as we go through scripture uh, this parting of the Red Sea is looked back on over and over and over again as God um, being the deliverer being the rescuer being the re- redemption for his people it's, it's kind of maybe a stretch but um, it's it's like the resurrection God parted the world for us to uh, made a way for us to get to heaven with the resurrection he's saving us through the resurrection like he saved them parting the sea that's yeah. a stretch but it, it makes me think of that absolutely and I, I think there is a very real connection um, the theory is that where Jesus was baptized was in the same general vicinity where the people crossed over into the promised land that Ken was referring to. So here you have this this evidence in the past where God brought his people from where they were to where he wanted them to be, where salvation was for them, where their new life, where their promised land was. Here you have Jesus being baptized in that same general area um, with that beautiful picture of the Trinity as God speaks, as the dove lights, and for the purpose for which Pat says of redeeming us. And so uh, it does all fit together. Uh, You'll recall that Stephen in Acts 7 recounts basically all of the important parts of Jewish history in this amazing uh, chapter and and again refers not only to um, uh, Moses and the Egyptians and um, uh, God uh, uh, bringing them across the Red Sea and you know the the entire story he recounts because it's an important part of the narrative and Stephen saw it didn't stop there. It didn't stop there, as Pat said. It, it continued there. So, so yes, um, uh, in, in many other places, uh, you'll see this progression um, looking back toward what God did there because it was such a powerful example of, um, 
of his care and, and redemption of his people. Moving on a little bit, uh, what are the implications of God giving the law to his people? All right, so that's exactly right. I mean, that's that's jumping all the way to the to the critical end. That the ultimate implication of the law was that we can't do it. Early on, if we look at the beginnings of the law, uh, what did the receipt of the law by this? group of people who maybe just a couple months ago had walked across that Red Sea, what was the significance that they received the law? What did it say about God? What did it say about them? Right. Um, an amazing gift that was given, the actual words of God given to this special group of people or a group who maybe they didn't know how special they were yet, but now they can see that they were the receivers of this. And even, even now, I think um, classic Judaism would, would look at one of their claims to fame, you might say, as we were the ones that got the law. We were entrusted with that. And, and I think they took it seriously in, the, in that regard. So it set them apart as a people. It also had an effect on them, right? I mean, it, brought, it helped unify them as a people because now, okay, here's this, regardless of you got two million people, chances are there were a lot of different house rules going on. Well, that's not the way we do it. Well, here's the way we do it, you know. And I guess it probably all started at Passover because so, there were some very specific rules that in order to make it out alive, you had to follow these sets of rules. So that set the precedent. And now God's going to give the law for, and they're supposed to follow it, right? And so it honored them. It instructed them. It unified them. Um, in some ways, it leveled the playing field for them um, that there's God and then there's everyone else. So an amazing thing that they received the law. What are the implications of the presence of the tabernacle? Did y'all hear that? I think that's like the, the most succinct, amazing answer. Say it louder. God wants to be with them. God wants to be with his people. Now that's kind of, I mean, amazing, right? Because some of us aren't really worth hanging out with then. <laughs> you know, uh, and I include myself in that sometimes. You know, I mean, we're just, you know, we've got so many things, right? We've got so many things. Um, God wants to be with his people. And so um, this, this tabernacle, this portable tent, this set of amazing architecture which would fit in this room where all the elements we've seen there was a, 
a, a place and a purpose and a um, symbolism for everything. Many people have gone into this. We haven't gone into it as much as some people have. But this was a designated place where God said, here I am. I'm going to meet with you. Um, it says, I want to be with you, which again is echoes of the garden when he wanted to be with them. Thank you. This is probably the, I was not sure I was going to play by ear when the perfect time would be to jump to the end of the book. And this is a perfect opportunity. Turn to chapter 40. We've heard God instructions of how to collect the money and the materials, how to find the right artisans, or to at least identify the artisans that God had um, elected, how to construct the tabernacle and all the implements and then in chapter 40 verse 1 the Lord spoke to Moses on the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle and you shall do put in this put in all the furnishings and so forth and then you shall anoint it so in short all of the instructions that that God had given to Moses all came to pass and then the priests were done um, and we go through all that and then we come to the latter few verses verses 34 and following it says then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle now we've seen some references to the glory of the Lord here in these last few weeks right we talked about the Shekinah glory and how um, Moses kind of was affected by that or, or in received that as, as he met with God. It says um, in this passage though, verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So in other words, God's presence was so full there that not even Moses could be there. So here you have exactly as she was describing, God is here but he is whole. He's here and he's whole. And pulling those two concepts together, I think, is something that literally thousands of years later, I'm not sure anyone's kind of found the sweet spot. Even if you look at within the world of Christianity, uh, and even the world of Protestant Christianity, and even in the world of evangelical Christians, you have the gamut, right? There are some places that are all about worshiping God and feeling the presence of God, but to the outside bystander, you might see, well, you know, yeah, but Jesus ain't your big brother, right? In a casual, overly familiar sense, right? And then you might have others who participate in a worship service where everything is so high and lofty 
to really address this concept that God is holy, but other people might say, you know, God's still with you, you know, it's not separate. So I think we've, we still see those extremes, but the right answer is probably, is somehow both. It's God wants to be with us, God is holy. And one day, praise God, we'll get to do it right. Where we'll be able to enjoy his presence and honor his holiness in a way that we all survive <laughs> um, and in a way that's appropriate. And I guess we'll figure it out once we're told what to do. Uh, verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So, as has been said, sometimes you get to a place like this and it's not the end. It's just the end of the beginning. And that's, that's really what it is. They're getting set finally. They're across the Red Sea. They're unified as a people. They receive the law. They totally mess it up. I, if you... If you, we've talked about creation a few times. If you look at the, the whole golden calf, it's Genesis 3 all over again, right? It's, it's rejection. It's rebellion. It's sin. It's getting kicked out of the garden. It's you know, not what God intended, right? It's all those things. But here we have, we've come through all that. God said, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm holy. Um, and I'm going to lead you because... This is not where we're stopping. This is just where we're starting. All of this just to get you ready to take you to where I really want you to go. And in some ways, that's kind of where we are. Uh, we've had, we've, we're on this side of the cross, right? We've been saved, we've been redeemed, but are we where we ultimately want to be? Not yet, right? Uh, we've still got some journey um, ahead of us. Uh, so we are also uh, not at the end. Uh, we are uh, perhaps at the, just the end of the beginning. Last question, what biblical themes does, God, uh, does Exodus illustrate? You guys have hit all of these. His, what, shout out, if you got like a one or two word answer. Faithfulness. God's faithfulness. He rescues us. He rescues us. Sovereignty. His sovereignty. Sovereignty. His power. Deliverance, liberation. He's a deliverer. He liberates us. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. One more time. Unconditional love. Steadfast loving kindness. What else? He wants us to do what he says to do. He wants our obedience. All right.
I guess that's it. Let's pray. Father, as our creator, as our deliverer, as our lawgiver, receiving that law that is now not written on tablets of stone, but written on our hearts, we thank you. We thank you for the account of what happened way back then. We thank you that by being grafted in the vine that we can be participators in those promises made way back then. And we thank you that you are not finished with us and that you still have us on a journey. Lead us and guide us through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody. Matthew is next week.